0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Milnick continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 29. Now, here's Jim. Well, this morning we continue with our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 29. So if you've got a Bible, you can... Open it to that, and we'll be there for most of the, the morning uh, within those verses. Now, we've been studying the early life of the church that Jesus founded with his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and the new covenant that he ushered into his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. If you've been with us over the summer, you would have noticed that the church that Jesus established had a number of hurdles that it had to overcome in this first century A.D., In a number of ways, the church still faces some of these same hurdles today in the 21st century. They may manifest themselves differently today, but they're the same hurdles nonetheless. Hurdles such as persecution that was faced by the early believers that resulted in arrest and imprisonment, and that still goes on today in a number of countries, or the threat of execution that Stephen faced is still a threat that believers face just because they proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And also missionaries such as Paul and others had to be cautious how they spread the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the known world, as they often encountered opposition from those for whom they thought their lifestyle was being threatened, and the message that they brought. And that continues to this day as a challenge faced by missionaries around the world. In our world today, so much has changed in 2,000 years, and yet some things have remained the same. But what we have today in chapter 15 is not a threat from outside of the church, coming into the church, that's threatening what God had ordained, but rather what we have today in chapter 15 is a threat of disunity from the inside that had the potential to split the church and create dissension within the church from within. The threat of disunity was occurring because of differences in thought, between one of three groups of Christians. And I've grouped these Christians under the following headings. Gentile Christians, that is all of us who are not Jewish, we are considered Gentiles. So there were Gentile Christians at that time. There were Christian Jews and there were Jewish Christians. And I've divided the Christians as they were now being called in the book of Acts into three groups for reasons that's going to become more clear as we continue on in Acts chapter 15 specifically what we're going to be looking at is the potential for one of these three groups to cause division as a result of their insistence of what was required to be saved. And we're going to look at how the church leaders responded in the form of a compromise of all things. And I also want to spend a few moments on what appeared to be contradictions with regards to Paul's view on circumcision. See, circumcision was an act that was handed down as a command by God to the nation of Israel, that was handed to them before they even became a nation of Israel. It was part of a covenant that God gave to Abraham. So circumcision was part of the Jewish psyche, and you'll see how that comes into play as we look into this chapter. Well, let's begin as we look at the first five verses in Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Well, here we have the stage set for the conflict from within in the life of the early church. All of the characters involved in our story today are believers, that is, people who have professed the faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and I believe that they were all looking to do what is right in God's eyes. The challenge was they didn't all agree on what is right in God's eyes. Well, let's take a, a moment and look at the characters that are in this chapter to help us understand the conflict and how it was resolved. Well, first we have this group of men who came from Judea to Antioch. Now, this would not have been a casual trip for them. If they came from Jerusalem, which is in the region of Judea, it would have taken at least two weeks to get there by foot, or at least a week if you traveled on donkey. We don't know much about them other than they believed that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. They may have been that same group that Paul talked about in Galatians chapter two, verse twelve. We also have Paul and Barnabas, missionaries to Antioch, who sharply opposed the teaching by this group of men. We have the Gentile Christians in Antioch who unintentionally became the catalyst for this conflict. And then in Jerusalem itself, we're introduced to a group of believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees who repeat this message that circumcision was a requirement among the Gentiles. Peter is also there and speaks to the group gathered to discuss the issue, as well as James, the half-brother of Jesus. There is Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, and Silas, who will be asked to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with a letter that's going to be sent to that church. And there are other unnamed characters and um, apostles and elders who are all part of the discussion that was going on. So now we have a brief introduction to the main characters involved in our story in the life of the early church and the conflict that arose from within. Well, let's start looking into these people. And what role they played in the account of the life of this early conflict that was going on. What is it about these men who arrived from Judea who insisted that Gentile believers must be circumcised? Why did they as well as others like those who were members of the Pharisees who accepted Christ as the Messiah believe that this practice was required in order to be saved whereas men like Paul and Barnabas sharply disputed that with them? All of them were of Jewish descent. I think that to understand why the difference in theology, we have to briefly look at the difference between two of the three groups of the Christians that I mentioned in the introduction. That is, Jewish Christians and Christian Jews. You remember in the introduction I said that the threat of disunity was occurring because of a difference in thought between one of these three groups of people. Well, within the category of the Gentile Christians, you have those Antioch Christians, who were not Jews. Within the category of Christian Jews, I placed Paul and Barnabas. And within the category of Jewish Christians, I placed the men from Judea, as well as those who were from the party of the Pharisees, who were also believers. So in order to understand the difference in theology, we need to understand the difference between Jewish Christians and Christian Jews. And the difference between Jewish Christians and Jewish And Christian Jews is really quite simple. Jewish Christianity is Christianity that is Jewish and Christian Judaism is Judaism that is Christian. See, it's really quite easy to understand. But just in case I've lost you, I've got some more in-depth descriptions to arrive at Christian Jews. And again, that's the group that Paul and Barnabas would fit into. You start with Christianity and you add Jewish people and Jewish things. You add Jewish customs and Jewish songs and Jewish clothing and food. In other words, Christian Jews are Jewish people who remain Jewish, but their emphasis is on Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he ushered in. To arrive at Jewish Christians, the other side of this coin, and again, those are men who were insisting that Gentile Christians must be circumcised. You start off with Jews and you add Jesus the Messiah and his teachings, but you hold fast to the Old Testament covenant and its law, and you're trying to impose the Mosaic law over top of the covenant by grace that Jesus came to usher in. And I can understand how hard it must have been for a lot of Jewish people to start adopting this new covenant and to start living under it. I mean, these are laws and customs that were handed down generation after generation. In some cases, even before the time of Moses. Now, there's no indication that these men from Judea were considered enemies by Paul or Barnabas. The fact that they debated with them and didn't just dismiss them as someone looking to oppose the church seems to indicate that they were considered to be believers in Christ, whose theology surrounding circumcision Paul and Barnabas sharply disputed, but they were brothers in the faith nonetheless. So now we have the people involved when the conflict began, that is, these men who came from Judea, Paul and Barnabas and the Antioch Christians. And we have the internal conflict that developed that had the potential to create division. That is whether or not circumcision is a requirement for salvation. Now let's turn our attention to the process that was taken to resolve this conflict. The second half of verse two states that Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. (coughs) To resolve this issue, either they wanted or they needed the advice of someone other than themselves in a higher authority whom both sides would respect. And that's someone with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, some of whom were with Jesus when he was on this earth. And so we have the first recorded church council. When the delegation arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcome. And Luke records some of that dialogue, and we can pick up the story at verse 6 in chapter 15. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No! We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. We have a glimpse in this chapter of how the early church leadership worked, at least in this instance. When Peter addressed the church council, he reminded them of how God used him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and he was probably referring to the um, time that he met with Cornelius and his household in Caesarea. Biblical scholars generally date this council in Jerusalem as being about 10 years after that encounter that Peter had with Cornelius. So the fact that God granted salvation and gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles would have been well established in the church in general. So Peter states that God shows no distinction between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to salvation. All are saved and accepted by faith. Peter chose some strong words in his defense of this principle of salvation. To test God, as Peter said, would be to see how far you can push God before he starts pushing back. And that's not something I would advise anybody to try with God. The burden of the yoke that some believers were advocating for was an unbearable one in Peter's opinion. In studying for this message, I came across an interesting observation in Peter's discourse. Peter makes a statement. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In the time prior to Jesus introducing this covenant of salvation by grace, if a Gentile converted to Judaism, a Jewish person would have said, they are saved just as we are. But to flip that coin to the other side and say, we are saved just as they are, would not have gone unnoticed and would further emphasize to the Jews there that they have no privilege over the Gentiles when it comes to salvation. Peter didn't always follow this view and hold to his own teaching, though. In Galatians chapter 2, we have the letter in which Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in which he calls out Peter with respect to Peter disassociating himself with Gentile believers. This happened when Peter made a trip to Antioch himself, and we don't know exactly when he made that trip, but while he was there, he was influenced by a group of men, and he began to distance himself from Gentile Christians. Just as we don't know when this happened, we also don't know why Peter succumbed to the influence of these men. Peter's response is not recorded, but Paul's stinging rebuke would certainly have had the effect of causing Peter to give a second thinking to what he was doing. I love the honesty of the Bible. Knowing that someone like Peter sometimes got it wrong is a comfort to me. And I know that might sound weird in a weird sense of a way. But if someone like Peter who had such a close relationship with Jesus made mistakes and sometimes got it wrong, I don't feel so bad when I screw up. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be repentant. After Peter's discourse in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas reported all that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then James, a half-brother of Jesus, addresses the council. And we can pick that up starting at verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for the ages. Jesus' half-brother James has sure come a long way. John records that even Jesus' half-brothers did not believe him in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And now, less than two decades later, James is a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he has considerable influence within it. When James addresses the council, he summarizes Peter, who he refers to as Simon, that is Peter's original name, but he doesn't just base the judgment that he's about to make on just the testimony of Peter and Paul and Barnabas, as compelling as that might be. Rather, he takes all those present on a journey back into the Old Testament to convince even the Jewish Christians that Gentile Christians are every bit their equal when it comes to salvation, even without circumcision. It's generally accepted that James was quoting from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. The challenge arises is that the words that James speaks differ from what is recorded In the book of Amos in the Old Testament, did James misquote the prophet? I don't believe so. James starts off by saying the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. I believe it's probable that James was weaving the context of the decision before them with the prophecy of not only Amos, but other Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, who also prophesied salvation for the Gentiles. James does not change the meaning of God's message to the nation of Israel through Amos. Rather, he's simply wording it in a way that is relevant to the discussion taking place that day. In referencing Amos, James not only relies on the testimony of experience given by Paul and Barnabas, who witnessed the Gentiles' conversion, but he also seeks the witness of the scriptures themselves to settle the argument. By doing so, James shows that Gentile salvation, apart from circumcision, was not only a New Covenant teaching, but also an Old Testament doctrine. Well, next we moved into the resolution that was proposed by James as a solution to the conflict within the church. And we'll pick that up, Acts chapter 15, verses 19 to 22. And this is James speaking. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders within the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. Well, as a result of the theological discussion that took place during this council in Jerusalem, James sets forth a practical decision. It was his considered judgment that we, that is the leaders who met to discuss this, should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. In other words, let's not trouble or annoy the Gentile believers in Christ Jesus beyond what is reasonable. This parallels in thought what Peter had said earlier in this chapter. And James makes a suggestion of what the next step should be in the process of settling this. James said we should write a letter and in it list four of the following instructions that they are to observe. James did not say we should write a letter to them suggesting what they might do to come to a conclusion to this. No, he indicated that as a group, the council that met to discuss this issue should write and tell them what they are to do to resolve this conflict. What's really interesting is that James does not include in his suggested letter anything about the question of circumcision directly. He seemed to recognize that the question of circumcision was not the catalyst for the conflict that developed in Antioch, but rather it was a symptom of the conflict that was developing not only in Antioch, but in other churches around the area. The conflict was actually a schism that was developing between Jewish and Gentile believers. The contents of the letter that James proposes had the input of God's spirit working within him, and the compromise that James proposes is cleverly worded to appease both sides. The question of circumcision being required for salvation has been answered, perhaps not to the satisfaction of all, but it had been answered nonetheless. And now it is time to restore the unity that had been fractured. James proposes four items of instructions for the Christians in Antioch. Two items would be practical in helping to keep the Gentile Christians pure in God's eyes and act as a holy testimony to the rest of the community that they lived in. And two items would help appease the Jewish Christians so that they would not feel like they were being thrown under the bus, but rather that their concerns were being addressed as well. The council agreed with James's judgment, and the apostles and elders, and in fact the whole church decided to choose some men from among them, to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with the letter to authenticate the letter that was being sent. And I find it interesting how the thinking was in that first century A.D. when it came to authenticating a message that was being sent. See, in today's world, we say, get it in writing. That is, a written document carries much more weight than word of mouth. But here in that first century A.D., Judas and Silas are sent back to authenticate by word of mouth a written document. If you remember back to my introduction on Acts, I mentioned that Luke employed a unique literary technique that was all his own in the Bible, and that in it he mentioned in a minor way characters that were about to take on a more prominent role. Luke did it with Paul, and he did it with Barnabas, and here he's doing it with Silas. Silas is just briefly mentioned here as being one person, going back on the um, entourage, back to Antioch. But Silas is about to become a more prominent person in the pages to follow. Well, let's finish off the passage before us this morning, continuing on with verse 23, and looking more closely at the letter that was sent. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings, We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Well, here we have a record of the letter that was sent to not only the Gentiles in the church in Antioch, but also to other Gentile Christians in the region as well. The letter starts off by settling the question of circumcision being a requirement for salvation, not with a direct answer, But with a broader generalization that some men had went up to them without the authority of the church in Jerusalem and had caused trouble among them by what they had said. After the letter confirms the findings of the council, they, that is, the elders and the apostles, expressed their admiration for Paul and Barnabas. They referred to these two men as their dear friends and acknowledged that they have risked their lives for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he was sending forth. He also, also indica- the author also indicates that the Holy Spirit was a prime motivator in this requirement that they were putting forward. And those four requirements are, and I've regrouped them slightly so that they fit into two categories, but those four requirements are they are to abstain from consuming blood, they are to abstain from consuming the meat of a strangled animal, they are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, and they are to abstain from sexual immorality. Why choose these four requirements? While we're not told the reason for these requirements, we can look at what they have in common. The first two deal with Jewish dietary law, and that is the the prohibition from consuming blood. So no blood sausage, no kishka. I'm good with that. (laughs) When God led the Israelites out of Egypt... He handed down the law to Moses that the Israelites were to follow so that they would constantly be reminded of the reverence and respect that God deserves. Leviticus is the record of that law. And it's a manual of how the Israelites were to live a life that God intended them so that they could cohabitate with each other and with God. In it, God establishes that the Israelites were not to consume blood or the meat from an animal, from which the blood had not been properly drained from it. The reason for this requirement from God was not so much a health or safety aspect, but I believe it was more of a moral one. God established the blood of animals was meant to be an atonement or a covering up of the sin from which the Israelites were guilty of. The blood of the sacrifice was holy in God's eyes and was not meant for human consumption, but for spiritual renewal. And Leviticus 17 verses 11 12 it says for the life of the creature is in the blood and i had given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life therefore i say to the israelites none of you may eat blood nor may an alien living among you eat blood this was all part of the practice of animal sacrifice that went on at that time in israel's life and the practice that God had ordained for them as a way, as I said, to cover up the sins of the nation and the individual. The idea of atonement through a sacrificial blood of an animal was actually introduced by God prior to the time of Moses. In Genesis chapter 9, God gives the same command to Noah after the flood, prohibiting the consumption of blood. And of course, and this is really important, It was through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that the sins of the sinner was not just covered up anymore as they were in the past, but now a person's sins could be completely obliterated when they come to faith in Jesus Christ and give their life over to him. Paul and other missionaries like him had been preaching all over the Mediterranean the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who through his sacrifice on the cross shed the blood that bridges the chasm between God and man that no one else could do. These Gentile Christians who put their faith in Christ because of the gospel message that was spoken to them would have had no difficulty understanding the significance that blood was more than just something coursing through the body. The restriction from the consumption of blood and its spiritual significance would not only be understood by both Jews and Gentiles, but in practicing the restriction, it would serve as a unifying force between them. It was something they could practice together for the same reason as equals. And I know I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, and you can agree or disagree with me. That's okay. But I I see this as a unifying potential, as a strong probability, when you see how the council in Jerusalem was drafting the letter that looks to unify the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Well, the second pair of requirements, they are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, and they are to abstain from sexual immorality. These two restrictions were not meant to be a unifying force between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Rather, these restrictions had the effect of separating or setting apart the Gentile Christians from the Gentile unbelievers. That those who chose to worship false gods would see something different in those who chose to worship Jesus Christ. The worshipping of false gods and sexual immorality was common in these regions, and the temptation would have certainly been real to pull them away from the commitment they made as Christians to God. In the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians several years after this event took place in Acts 15, Paul addresses the danger of consuming food sacrificed to idols. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul states that idols are nothing, and as such, food sacrificed to an idol is nothing. There's only one God. Since idols are nothing in reality, eating food sacrificed to an idol is inconsequential and does not defile the Christian. However, and this is a very big however, the freedom of the strong Christian can be a real stumbling block for the weaker Christian. When Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. And in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul reiterates the message, but then he goes another step further. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 to 21, it reads, Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Paul goes on to state that since an idol is nothing, then food sacrifice to an idol does not defile the Christian whose conscience is clear. But if the actions of a strong Christian causes a weaker Christian to stumble, then both of them are guilty of sin. But now Paul states a real danger that applies to all Christians, even the stronger Christians. The idols of the pagans were nothing but lifeless pieces of wood, metal, or stone. But the dynamic nature of their worship was a direct assault towards the worship that is God's and God's alone. Only God is worthy of worship. The fourth item in the list, the art to abstain from sexual immorality, is pretty much self-explanatory. The Bible is full of examples and definitions of what constitutes sexual immorality. Even nuclear radiation has safe limits that one can be exposed to and not have any long-term health effects. But when it comes to sexual immorality, there are no safe limits. In the letter that the Jerusalem Council stated, they were to abstain from it completely. And so off, Paul and Barnabas and the others went to deliver the letter again, not only to the church in Antioch, but to other churches in the region as well. Now, I want to spend a couple minutes in closing just on a contradiction that some of you may have noticed if you've been continuing to read along in the uh, book of Acts. And it has to do with Paul's view when it comes to circumcision. The act of circumcision seems to keep coming up a number of times in the book of Acts, as well as a number of the letters in the New Testament. If you looked at some of these references to it, it can become confusing, as some of them seem to contradict each other when people like Paul, who are adamantly against it at times, then at other times seems to endorse it. In Acts chapter 15, there's no doubt that Paul is adamantly against circumcision. But then the very next chapter, chapter 16, Paul has Timothy, someone whose mother is Jewish and his father is Greek, circumcised. Well, what gives? This is a clear example of why it's imperative to understand the context of the scriptures. Not only when you try to understand the scripture itself, but when you start comparing scripture to scripture, context is everything. David Hook touched on this last week, and in chapter 15, the context that surrounds It is the context of salvation and the thought by some that circumcision was a requirement for it. In Acts chapter 16, salvation never comes up in the discussion. Acts chapter 16, the context is that Paul wanted to take Timothy along with him and Silas as they continued traveling throughout the regions delivering this letter that was sent by the council in Jerusalem. And in all likelihood, Paul circumcised Timothy, who was part Jewish, to be accepted by and not offend other Jews in the area. It had nothing to do with salvation. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, the act of circumcision comes up again with Paul, this time with Titus, a man of Greek descent for whom there was pressure again that he be circumcised to be saved. And again, Paul opposes this requirement for salvation. From a contextual standpoint, Paul was not opposed to circumcision under the right settings. It was something ordained by God. Circumcision was a command given by God as a sign for his chosen nation, Israel, to set them apart. In that context, Paul would have believed it was right for Timothy to be circumcised as he was part Jewish, and having him circumcised would prevent friction among other Jewish men and himself that he came in contact with. But Paul was adamantly opposed to anyone who preached or believed that circumcision was a requirement for salvation because, and this is important, Because it starts to make salvation a works-based faith. And you cannot work your way into heaven. It's a gift of grace that God gives to all who believe. You know, if I was an uncircumcised, gentle living in Paul's time, and he came up to me and said, Hey, Jim, why don't you come along with me on my next mission trip? I think I might say, it's okay, Paul, I'll wait for the next apostle to come along. He was a controversial guy, but you know, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, and God used him in very powerful and mighty ways. In conclusion this morning, we've looked at the conflict that arose in Antioch between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, that is, Christians of Jewish descent who accepted Jesus as the Messiah and his teaching, but held fast to that Old Testament covenant and its law, trying to impose the Mosaic law over top of the covenant of grace that Jesus had ushered in. And the belief by some that these Jewish Christians that circumcision was a requirement for salvation, was not so much the conflict, but rather a sign of the conflict of a schism that was developing between Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. And we looked at the process that it took to find a solution to this conflict. The first recorded church council that took place in Jerusalem, in which the elders and apostles with the guidance of the Holy Spirit found a solution in the form of a compromise that would not just settle the question, but also foster a spirit of unity as well. And we'll look briefly at the apparent contradictions to Paul's view on circumcision and the need to look at context in understanding scriptures. Well, after studying for this chapter, as I prepared for the sermon, I've come to the conclusion that if anybody's working towards a master in theology and they need a topic for a thesis, they only need to look to Acts chapter 15. You've got enough material here to do several theses. And it was a struggle to cover all this material, and not get lost down all the bunny trails that are available. But I hope I hope that in looking at just the surface of some of this stuff, that maybe it's tweaked your um, appetite to do some digging yourself. And maybe even get lost on some of those old bunny trails and see where God takes you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Bible. Your inspired word that you inspired authors to record your thoughts. Your actions, your desires for us, Lord, is such a wonderful gift that you've given us. That we have this book that describes that love relationship between you and us, mankind. We can never repay you for all that you have blessed us with, all that you have done for us. Lord, all we can do is offer up our thanksgiving, our worship, our desire to be your servants and go out into this world as ambassadors for you to continue to spread this gospel of love that your son ushered in thousands of years ago. Lord, help us to be that. Help us to be those ambassadors for you. Help us to be unifiers and not dividers. Help us to edify and not tear down each other. Thank you for this time together, Lord. And we look forward to the day and all that it has to offer. We thank you for all this in your name. Amen.
1: Just one other announcement before we stand for our closing hymn. Uh, There's a, this uh, series in the book of Acts is going to be paused as of this chapter that Jim covered. Uh, That's always been planned. It has nothing to do with Jim's talk. Uh, uh, And we may pick it up later on. That's yet to be decided, but we're going to start next week a uh, study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I just was handed a little sheet from, uh, to, to just explain that from, from somebody else who has a, a, an assignment for you or two for this coming week. The first assignment is to read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's 12 short chapters. It's a very simple book. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you would read it ahead, that would help us uh, uh, just get started on that study. Uh, Also, I uh, would—pardon me—the announcement says that that you're you're to uh, think about the definition of the word wisdom and uh, write it down, uh, so that you don't just use the word wisdom to describe the definition of wisdom, but to understand what the what the word wisdom means. And then each of you—this is no part of the homework—he said—but each of you is going to be given the opportunity next week. Uh, to become an author. And you are going to be asked and helped, if you if you want some, uh, to write your own book of wisdom uh, As over the next six or eight weeks. So you can start to think about collecting what wisdom you live by, where you got it, uh, how it applies to your life at home and so on. So uh, you're going to have an opportunity to become an author and you'll hear more of that from the speaker next week.